VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? That was the first time that I experienced the, the willingness of people to take a chance on you if you're willing to go above and beyond. And that's a theme that has been reoccurring throughout my whole life. Yeah. So you show up to an industrial yard with a cream-colored three-piece suit. (laughs) You're like, hire me. (laughs) And yeah, I think think (laughs) most people have opportunities just sitting there. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. Exciting times here at DITV HQ. This week, we have our first, our first in-person podcast since February of 2020. Now, it's funny because before the pandemic, I did everything in my power to never do remote pods, to always be sitting in the same room with the person. Um, and my thought was that it would just make for a more natural, better conversation. You're in the room, you can kind of read a person better, get a sense of them, get that bit of extra kind of color. Now, having done almost a year and a half all remote, I think I was right and wrong. So doing the pot over Zoom isn't bad. It's actually way better than I thought it would be. And sometimes it's, you know, it's great. It can be a reasonable facsimile of the kind of Let's call it the old school way of doing things. So it is better than I thought it would be, but I have to say that as a general rule, it's just, it isn't quite as good. You're just missing that little few percent extra that you can get when you're doing it in person. So my hope is that going forward, as we start to transition back to more uh, kind of normal life, quote unquote, California just opened this week, we'll get to do uh, a lot more of the in-person interviews and get back to kind of a closer uh, kind of version of what we were doing before while also just recognizing we're still going to do some stuff over zoom um it also it's actually a good thing in that it allows us to kind of have people on the show that if they don't happen to be in california makes it impossible so there's lots of interesting people doing interesting things all over the world so that's a good thing um but anyway it's been an interesting experiment just a very very small one of the very many that we have all conducted this past year but anyhow that is not why you are here you are here to listen to my chat this week with Tim Barrett, who is the founder of Gridware, which is a startup that has just raised five million bucks from a bunch of the top VCs, including our friends at True Ventures. Um, and what they do is basically they're making it like an essentially a Fitbit for electricity poles, power poles. Now, on the face of it, that sounds weird, but not if you are in California. Because out here in wildfire country, we all know that our decrepit electricity infrastructure is one of the key culprits behind the wildfires that have just completely ravaged the state and caused hundreds of billions of dollars of damage, etc. And so what Barrett has done is come up with a solar-powered super sensing box that can beam in real-time information about what is or is not happening at the millions of power poles across the state. And so it's potentially a very big deal. And Tim also has just a really great backstory. He was a high school dropout out in a little town in Australia. And he took, um, needless to say, took a very circuitous route to end up where he is uh, now running Gridware, having just raised a bunch of money and, you know, doing some really interesting, obviously very relevant things as we face yet another potential fire season here. So I think you'll find it super interesting, both the problem he's trying to solve and how he ended up kind of coming to it in the first place. So here he is, Tim Barrett, the founder of Gridware, 
and this, our first in-person pod since the very early days of 2020. Enjoy. So this is very exciting for me because this is my first in-person podcast since February 2020. So thanks for having me to your, your lair here in scenic Walnut Creek. Yeah, thanks for coming. Yeah. This is definitely my first in-person podcast full stop. <laughs> well, it's a good. It's kind of a semi-first for both of us. Bo- yeah. Both of us then. But we before we got on the uh, started recording, you were mentioning you're obviously not from these parts. But you were talking about how you dropped out of school at 15. How? What? How? So where are you from? Yeah. <laughs> like we can start there and get back and that'll take us up, I'm sure, to what you're doing now, but Sure, absolutely. So originally I'm from the West Western suburbs uh, in Victoria, Australia. Right. Um from a little tiny town called Melton. Melton. Yes. <laughs> Which is actually interesting. I never actually thought of the analogies between wildfire and, 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 and Melton. From. Yeah. <laughs> but generally Melton is known for being very low income housing, heavily government subsidized living. Is it for more like a company town or something like that? Or is it just... It's perceived very negatively throughout right. Victoria. Um, Got you. And I grew up from, from a very kind of, kind of humble, simple beginning. Uh, and at around 15, I was in school. And I guess I was frustrated looking at all, all the people around me and wishing that I had more stuff. Yeah, right. That's generally what motivates... A lot of people. Yeah. Is, is And are you the only child? Do you have siblings? Or I have a sibling, uh, a brother. Okay. He's younger than me. Okay. Uh, and so he's actually a lot younger than me. Uh, he was only five years old at that time. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Ten-year difference, right? Yeah. But I just decided that I wanted to go and make money. I was entirely driven by by financial incentives. Uh, so what, were, what was, when you say humble beginnings, uh, what does that look like? It's kind of struggling day to day, everybody in the family pitching in to make the bills. You know, if I wanted new clothing, uh, it wasn't just a simple ask. It was kind of save up for a couple months. Yeah. I, I've, I actually started mowing lawns very young, 12, 13. I would go out on a Sunday, nearly every Sunday and mow people's lawns, hmm. just knock on people's front doors. And so I guess I was very industrious yeah. from, from a very young age. Um, and my parents brought me up that way. And we were all contributing. And so I felt like school wasn't really pushing me. You know, we couldn't afford to go to private schooling. Yeah. I was in the public schooling system. I did some private schooling, but things kind of changed financially for us. And we, I had to go back to and return to public school. So I think that was also a driving motivation because I had experienced private school. and, and Which is quite a difference, I would guess. Yeah, it is a huge difference yeah. where, where people actually want to be there and, and you're driven and there's, there's pathways within the school to excel. You know, yeah. if, if, you're, if you're excelling in your studies in certain subjects and they create advanced yeah. pathways for you. But that, none of that exists in public education, in, in, at least where I'm from. Yeah. Uh, and so... I found myself kind of misbehaving a lot. Uh, I was suspended a lot. I would would ride my bicycle to school every day so that I could pick and choose. One day I'd go to school, one day I'd go to the, the BMX park. Um, and I just felt like I was wasting my life. So I made the decision to to drop out of school. and At 15? Yeah. And I'd How, always... How'd your parents react to that? Yeah, it was tough. <laughs> yeah, it was really tough. Um, but also at the same time, in that area, hmm. progression to university isn't common. And so people generally finish year 11 and 12 in Australia in this area that I was hmm. from, and then they go into the service industry or, or et cetera. Right. And to me, it didn't make any sense because the skills that you learn in year 11 and 12 kind of prepare you for university. Yeah. And I never envisioned myself going to university right. ever. I was an outdoor person, snowboarding when we could afford it. Um, BMX, all yeah. of those activities. Uh, and so I just simply made up my mind and, and kind of said to my parents, I'm doing this uh, because it doesn't make any sense for me to, yeah. to spend the next two and a half years of my life, three years in school for no reason. I'm mm-hmm. just going to go do it now. And you can. And so I've always been fascinated with electricity. And, and <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's kind of magic. Yeah, You can't see it. Yeah. You can't hear it. You can't smell it. Uh, it's essentially invisible, and yet 
it impacts everybody. Yeah, it makes the world go round. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's, there's different levels of electricity and computers take that down to the microscopic level. But I was always fascinated with, with how the lights always go on and, yeah. and, and electricity flowing through these power lines and watching videos where things go wrong on the grid. And, and yeah, I just felt like that was where I belonged. And right. so I decided to pursue a career as an electrician. As a 15-year-old, you decided? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I managed to convince a company to, to hire me. This is, not, this is a non-traditional pathway. I spent three or four months looking for a job. Yeah. And I remember we, we saved up for three or four months to purchase a suit. And I remember it very clearly. It was a, mm. a cream-colored suit. It was pinstriped. Cream. And it was it had a vest strong as well. Strong look. Very strong look. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> I wish that you could see the, the, the face of, of so do this I. company, that I, <laughs> the, the manager. Um, because I'd been saving up because nobody was hiring me. And yeah. so I thought, if I get this suit, it's going to give me this advantage. Yeah. I was just convinced. And so I show up to the yard of the company. It's not an office. Yeah. It's just literally a yard with, with, with trucks out the front and, and, and supply and inventory. And I'm in this essentially tuxedo <laughs> with like a folder, um, that thick cardboard yep. for my resume. And I go and knock in the office and they're kind of looking at me really funny. And he took one look at me, took one look at my resume, which was basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I just went to school yeah. <laughs> and dropped out and said, I'll see you on Monday. Wow. And, and I, I think that was the first time that I experienced the, the willingness of people to, to, to take a chance yeah. on you if you're willing to go above and beyond. Yeah. And that's a theme that has been reoccurring throughout yeah. my whole life. Yeah. So you show up to an industrial yard with a cream-colored <laughs> three-piece suit. <laughs> you're like, hire me. <laughs> and yeah, I think I think <laughs> most people have opportunities just sitting there yeah. that they can they, they can offer yeah. to to a young energetic person, but they're just looking for for someone that for a reason kind of to be like has put in yeah, that effort, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that was that was how that that began, and I worked. So you went to work as an electrician, mm-hmm. and just what trained on the job, or so the way that it works is you do an apprenticeship, and you you take on the job training your hours, and you go also to school, right, one day a week, and you learn everything from safety to yeah. the technical aspects of things, um, and I did that for for two years. And while working with, with this company, they did new construction, new mm. residential and commercial uh, construction. And so I, I had a lot of opportunity to interact with customers mm. that, that were, were, were building. And the way that it works is there's a lot of work that's done after the construction is completed. But it costs a lot to get the builder to do it. Yeah. And the builder obviously hires our company. So we would make a connection and, and we would do the work after hours. Myself and, and some of the other workers, we'd kind of team up and mm. do work after hours. And the boss was totally fine with it yeah. because the, the overhead of managing all of that. And within two years, I was working more after work than mm. during my main job. And so I began to think, well, I, should, I shouldn't be getting paid $7 an hour. to to do all of this work i can do this on my own and there's a loophole that i discovered because in australia you can uh, run an electrical contracting business as non-qualified but you have to hire somebody that is qualified right so you become the business representative so that's what i did Uh, i decided to venture out on my own i started barrett electrical and at 17 yeah just about turning to to 18 and (laughs) i kind of threw myself in the deep end and within a couple weeks i was out of work (laughs) and i had now this qualified individual Mm. that i had to pay as well as kind of sustain myself and so i began door knocking literally knocking at people's doors as a 17 year old making business cards and saying what? Being like, hey, do you want me to look at your light switches? <laughs> anything. 
<laughs> do you have any electrical work? And and the amount of times that I iterated on this pitch that I gave, you know, it's perfect training for what I just had to go through in March. And Sand Hill Road going and being like Perfect that. training. Right. <laughs> because you're coming to a person's home and offering something that 99% of the time they won't need. Yeah. Do you need new lights? Do you need new receptacles? Is your circuit breakers not working? Things like that. But you'll actually be surprised with how much work there is out there once once you show up. Um, and within a couple months, I, mean, I had begun to to build up this customer base. You know, I was very uh, showed up 15 minutes early. Yeah. I was able to give pricing straight away. A lot of the overheads that that other people have, I didn't have because it's just a very small company. And things went very well. And I began doing custom chandeliers. And then I met. While doing one of those custom chandeliers, I met someone in the, in the high voltage power distribution sector, one of the managers at Gemini mm. in, in Victoria. And he said, you should be working on a high voltage. Well, I'm only a, a low voltage electrician yeah. working on 240 in Australia. And so it's fine because most of the work that you've done applies to, to line worker training and you can get paid a lot more. I can give you a large contract. You can be a contract lineman. And I was all over that. Uh, straight away, I went back to school, did the, the required training to do that. And then I started my on-the-job training as well. And that's when I, I kind of became addicted to thinking about how we can make this more reliable. Because a lot of people are shocked when the power doesn't work. Yes. But I'm shocked when the power does work. Yeah. <laughs> Because the amount of components or points of failure existing from generation through to your receptacle or your light switch mm. can top 100,000 different points of failure, not including just every single inch of the power lines. Yeah. And so that kind of baffled me. And then to kind of fast forward to where we are now here in California, I met my, my beautiful wife in, in Australia. She's mm. from Sacramento, California. And <laughs> were you in Melton when you met her? Yeah, absolutely. What was she doing in Melton? Well, so one of my friends um, married her sister. <laughs> I don't know how he managed to do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so he was the trailblazer. Right. Um, so he managed to swoon up a California girl and I met her at their wedding. I see. And I was never one for relationships or, or being kind of tied down. Yeah. But we kind of hit it off and then she would come to visit and I grew closer to her. And then one day I just said to her, I want to be with you. And, you know, if we go into a relationship, this is long distance. It means that I, uh, this should either end up in marriage. Yeah. And so she kind of took a chance on me and we dated for two and a half years before I proposed to her. And then I was excited to kind of move to yeah. a different new place here in California. We, we, we listen to music from California rap artists and, yeah. and the weather here is terrific. And yeah. When did, so when did you move here? 2013. And this was just as my business was really ramping up. We had this, secured this big contract with, with Gemini, doing a lot of work out there on the lines. But at the end of the day, uh, I guess I was really excited by the potential here in California. Right. And so you ended up here, where? In Sacramento? Yep. So what'd you do? <laughs> <laughs> so when I got here, I was thinking about what I wanted to do. Uh, and I was kind of desperate, right? None of my certifications immediately transfer over from Australia. Uh, and I figured out the easiest way to do things was to become a journeyman electrician here in California. Hmm. I just had to take one test, an NEC code yeah. test. I did that. And then I started working in Tulare and UC Merced on just general new construction. Right. And I was away from my wife. So I quit and got a job in, in Sacramento working for a large company, but um, electrical contracting company, mm. but in the office, helping out with operations. Right. So it was about a team of 50. I was responsible for helping with scheduling, inventory, estimating, all those duties. And I'd always envisioned myself 
having a company like that with, with 50 employees mm. and, and taking on really large multi-million dollar electrical contracts or, or you know, power line installations, new circuits, things like that. But what I, I kind of got visibility into the, the mechanics and the financials when I was in, in that position. And I had a, a little crisis uh, because to scale, you scale on the backs of other people mm-hmm. in construction because the larger you get, the more competitive it becomes. Yeah. And then you have to, it's got, something's got to give. And it's unfortunately the workers. And so I had to make those phone calls to the workers where they had to work when, when their wives were giving birth. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and I just couldn't see myself doing that. Um, and so I began to get frustrated and, and, and was thinking about what I'm going to do next. And we got a contract in San Bruno at the new YouTube office. Mm. Uh, they, they did a, a tenant improvement and we were responsible for doing all the audio visuals, the TVs. You know, if you ever go there and you walk through the front door, there'll be like TV walls mm. and then they explode on the ceiling into tiny little screens and come back together and up the right. stairs and there's speakers and TVs in every room. And I was there installing those. And I had the opportunity to get visibility into what it's like to be an engineer. I'd never considered it before. I always viewed engineers as being in an office, an enclosed office, recycled air, just terrible. Yeah. <laughs> in, yeah. And that was my mentality. But when I was there, uh, you know, the free food, all of those extra things. But most importantly, they were responsible for building things that touched everybody's lives. And it triggered a memory for me when I was building chandeliers. Because when you build a chandelier, I'm not talking about these tiny little chandeliers that Mm. get installed in a couple hours. I would go to a person's home and this would be the center focal piece of their living room or in the hallway. It would take two to three weeks to to assemble or construct. Oh, wow. Sometimes there would be upwards of $30,000, dollars $50,000 Spanish alabaster. Uh, and you become part of the family yeah, yeah. during that time. And then you sit down for lunch and dinner. And then finally the day comes, we switch the light on for them. And the whole family gathers around yeah. and, and you see their eyes light up. And then I began to think, well, that's what these engineers are doing. They, they get all of these resources to develop things that light up people's lives. Mm. But millions of people yeah. simultaneously and I, you know you, you see those events where apple or google or even tesla they drive out the roads yeah. throughout the back of the, the the truck and so i began to think well maybe there's more for me to do here and so i went back to community college in sierra college you know, i don't have a, a formal high school education so i didn't have any chance yeah. getting into any of these top tier institutions and I didn't even know if I could. I didn't know what algebra was. I didn't know what a yeah. coordinate graph was. Yeah. And so I think I might give a shout out to, to Khan Academy. <laughs> and, you know, one day, hopefully, I might even get the opportunity to meet Sal um, and thank him personally. Right. But that's how I managed to even make it through the entrance exam. Into through Kim- Khan Academy yeah. videos. Yeah, because I didn't know anything. I never paid attention in high school. I was too busy thinking about girls and, and riding my BMX and, mm. and making people laugh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so it was incredible. I went from algebra to linear algebra in the span of two years. And I think coming from a background of, of already being in the workforce, yeah. you think about education differently. Mm. Every day that you're there you could have been at work making money. And so the mentality that I think a lot of students have when they go to school is they think about school as as the next step towards making yes. money. But that wasn't the case for me. And then I was at school because I wanted to enhance my knowledge, to, to meet as many people as I could, to, to build my tool set, yeah. to begin building systems that change people's lives. Yeah, it's much more intentional if you're coming at it from a place where you've already seen what it's like to work, make yeah. money, etc. Yeah. And so I think that lends very well to doing well in an mm. academic environment. It drove me to stay up till one, two o'clock in the morning studying trigonometry and and derivatives and yeah. physics. And I worked on a lot of side projects. I, I did a project 
where we were working on a CubeSat that would go up to space mm. and take a picture of the Earth. Mm. I always wanted to take a picture of the Earth myself, put it in my lounge room, so mm. that I could say I took that photo. Yeah. <laughs> and then it came time to apply for universities to, to transfer. And I kind of crossed my fingers and, and as a stretch goal, applied to the electrical engineering computer science program at UC Berkeley and to Davis as well. And not only did I get into UC Berkeley, but I got the Regents and Chancellor's Scholarship, which is a full ride wow. through Berkeley. And that was just the beginning of all the resources that Berkeley provided to me. And as soon as I landed at Berkeley, the way that the, the program is structured is because it's EECS, Electroengineering and Computer Science, you can take classes across the whole stack. Yeah. And a lot of students, including myself, are kind of lost as to where they want to go. Yeah. And I got an, some advice that I should be thinking about my past career and how it could apply to, to technology or how technology could apply to yeah. problems that I had experienced. And obviously, the grid uh, is, is fraught with opportunities for improvement. I think this is actually the main reason why uh, people ask me all the time, why isn't what you're doing, how, why hasn't it been done mm. before? It's because it's been largely ignored by the academic community. It's been largely ignored by the public sector, by, by engineers in general. Yeah. It's just not a lucrative place to, to, to put your attention. Yeah. And I think they perceive it to be a very slow-moving industry. And so these are some of the things that we're trying to change to educate Students. Well, so, yeah, because PG&E went bankrupt yeah. because of the wildfires. Yeah. And the wildfire has happened or got really bad because they're happening out in these places that you know more about this than me, I'm sure. Fires started happening out in these remote areas with heavy brush, and they didn't know until it was too late. And this is like the one of the biggest utilities in America, which makes it one of the big, biggest utilities in the world, just not knowing what's happening on its out there in the world and lands them in bankruptcy court and the state in rolling blackouts. Well, think about how difficult it is to actually yeah. know uh, because pg e has 2.8 million poles spanning hundreds of thousands of miles and the sensors that they deploy, some of the best sensors in the world, mm. humans. But unfortunately, humans you can't have a human lineman standing next to every pole. And this has kind of been the central thesis of gridware is human-grade sensors on every pole. Uh, and so there's also other things to the equation where what's the cause and effect? Because a wildfire that's present near power infrastructure can then cause the infrastructure to fail. Yeah. And vice versa, a yes. failure of infrastructure can cause a fire. Yeah. And it's very difficult to tell what happened. And so you see people on both sides of the fence throwing things at each other. Well, what we want to do is, is what's the ground truth here? Yeah. Because then you can have the necessary discussions to, to begin solving the problem. They don't know what the problem is right now. Yeah. They, you do an investigation and, and, and whatnot. But without this concrete data about what the problem is, investment is getting put in the wrong places. So just going back to Berkeley, you go into the, the EECS program, you graduate. What year is that? So I graduated my undergraduate degree in 2019. Okay. And very focused on building the necessary skills to create these human-grade sensors for the grid. So you had already decided at school, this is yeah. the thing that I want. This is what I want to build. Yeah. So back in 2009, Black Saturday fires happened in Victoria. And I don't know if you know, but... 173 people were killed. Black Saturday. Yeah, and it was ignited. I know. What is black? I mean, I presume it was a big fire, but I, I mean, that's... So power lines ignited fires, specifically in Kilmore, Victoria. This fire was one of the biggest catastrophes in Australian history. Right. And it was caused by power lines. And I wasn't even working in high voltage yeah. distribution at that time, but I was definitely there. And... When I got to to Berkeley, I actually wasn't thinking about this from a wildfire perspective. Mm. Even though I had experienced that, I didn't make that very strong yeah. connection yet. I was more thinking about 
every time a lineman climbs a pole, they're worried that it's going to come down and they're going to die. Mm-hmm. And so what we do is we hit it with a hammer to listen to how it sounds because you in, that impulse induces a resonance. Mm. And then if it's high-pitched, it means generally that it's okay. If it's low-pitched, it means it has either termite damage or heart rot. And that's still what utilities do today. So our sophisticated utilities, you take a hammer and bang it on a piece of wood and hope for the best. Exactly. And you do that generally on a 10-year frequency. And so think about all the things that can happen in 10 years. And so that's that's the perspective that I started uh, along this journey. We need to change that. That that type of resolution of data. And then you abstract that up the layers of Mm. of decision-making. And certainly, you can't be making efficient decisions about where you deploy upgrades and maintenance. But then in 2018, when when we witnessed that fire that killed 83 people. Which one? Is that the Paradise Yeah, the Paradise Fire. What I was thinking about, you know, putting these sensors on every structure. Mm. Well, if we would have been present on that structure... We would observe that degradation. Because the Paradise Fire, for those who don't know, was was caused by PG&E equipment, correct? It was a faulty sea hook. What's so the sea hook holds the power line up. Right. And now as we start to see an increase in the frequency of, yeah. of extreme weather events, high winds, it creates a lot of stress mm. on the equipment, specifically these hooks. And so it begins to wear them out. And, you know, when you have these low-frequency inspections, how do you know where they are and where can you do the upgrades? And so that hook failed mm. uh, and the line unfortunately dropped to the ground. And in 2015, this is a different year, but in 2015, 99% of the cost of wildfires mm. was caused by power grid. Yeah. Of all wildfires, because wildfires start in many, many different yeah, ways. Yeah. Lightning strikes, glass bottles becoming magnifying glasses. and, and Really? Yeah. There's I should lot. know that because I used to, I obviously have very bad eyes. Yeah. And I used to use my glasses as a kid to yeah. light little leaves on fire. It's just a, a caution to everybody to, to, to not litter. <laughs> Indeed. Because you never know what the impact could be. But yeah. Mm. You've got that, you've got cigarette butts, you've yeah. got trailers dragging their chains and spark, putting the sparks to the grass on the side of the road. But unfortunately, it was the sea hook. So that was 2018. Mm-hmm. And was that the moment where you're like, ah, I can do something here? Exactly. It forced me to realize that nobody else was doing hmm. enough to solve this problem. And I guess I felt this sense of responsibility because I had this knowledge that I had gotten from my past career about how exactly do these faults happen? What is the solution here? And, and that's why I decided to go and do my graduate degree. And because that gave me the time to figure out what is the best pathway to actually provide a solution. What's the mousetrap you need to build? Well, no, no. It's it's more about what approach do I take to get the mousetrap into the market yeah. so that it can be everywhere. And so I had considered working for the CPUC, and for people that don't know, they're the regulators that regulate the utilities yep. here in California. And I went and I, I wrote a, a report for them. I was commissioned to write a report. I worked with um, analysts at the CPUC mm. for six months. I was testing the waters yeah. to see if I could have impact from an engineering perspective, from a line worker's perspective, yeah. um, to, to begin influencing public policy in the right direction. I also, uh, at the same time, was evaluating whether if doing a PhD would allow me to get this technology out there faster. Right. And then at the same time, I took a bunch of entrepreneurship courses because I had started a business in the past. Mm. I thought that um, I was largely inspired by Impossible Foods. I've always been a, a vegetarian mm. and never had any options. And then you see a company like Impossible come along and and. Now I can go to most restaurants and I have an option to eat. And have a eat. burger. I have a burger that isn't like a bunch of beans mashed up. In a exactly. Pad. And yeah. that's what startup innovation can do. Yeah. And so I did those three in parallel and ultimately decided to pursue the startup because of the unique business model that so, we developed. So with the startup, so the, the sensor you've built, was that is that 
kind of a feat of engineering or is it just taking a lot of off the shelf stuff and kind of stitching it together? So I don't know if you describe kind of what it is you guys have built and what it can do. It's very much a feat of engineering uh, that hasn't been completed yet. Right. <laughs> because what we're talking about here is a device that needs to perform in low light or no light conditions mm-hmm. for up to 14 days. It needs to be completely reliable, robust. It needs to exfiltrate data reliably from remote areas where mm. there isn't cellular coverage. And then you have to make it uh, cheap enough so that it can be deployed <laughs> on hundreds of thousands of poles. And what is it sensing? And so our approach is very much like I said, human-grade sensing mm. on the pole. And it's not one sensor. It's, and, and that's how the human body works. Yeah. Is, is the brain is very efficient at taking multimodal data, combining it, and filling in the gaps and achieving the, the required task. And that's what we're doing. We're taking uh, signals across physical phenomena, whether that's visual, uh, vibratory, acoustic, UV, IR. So is it basically the five senses? Basically. And then that's exactly why we say that's how we think about it is. And the interesting thing there is, because I said at the beginning of, of our conversation, we can't perceive electricity. Yeah. And that's something that holds true to what Gridware is doing. Hmm. Because most of the academic research is related to using electrical sensing to solve this problem. And nobody really has worked on taking the other approach where we don't use any electrical sensing. Mm. And to me, that makes a whole lot more sense coming from the field because that's exactly how we do it out in the yeah. field. Why would we ch- reinvent the wheel or try to do something differently? And, and people have said this before. I'm not the first person to say we should be replicating what humans do. When you look at autonomous driving, yeah. you have various different approaches. The one that makes the most sense to me is, well, we should be using image-based sensors to do that because that's what humans use so it's a very similar approach get more of the times and the sunday times for less than a pound a day visit the times.co.uk forward slash danny in the valley to start your free trial that's once again the times.co.uk forward slash danny in the valley so that they know i sent you iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So you graduate in 2019, then do grad school mm-hmm. to kind of help develop this idea. So when do you actually be like, okay, I understand the kind of the thing we need to make. I've created my pitch deck. Now I need to go to wherever, Sand Hill Road, or start doing the kind of the rounds yeah, so I very quickly, I already knew the thing. Mm. I knew what that was. And grad school was more to explore how we take that thing and make it a reality. Yeah. And so we were fortunate enough to be accepted into Citrus Foundry, mm-hmm. which is run from the University of California. Um, and, and it's an incubator. They don't provide any funding, but they provide you a whole bunch of necessary resources to prepare yourself for that next step. And then we managed to 
get in front of the California Energy Commission, specifically Dr. Janaya Scott, I had to, the opportunity to meet her. She now is in the White House. And she, she was kind enough to suggest that we apply for the CalSeed program. And I think, you know, you mentioned this is kind of a new era for mm. clean energy. And I think what's different about now than in 2008 is that these systems have been developed to cultivate grassroots innovation mm. and help it cross this enormous chasm yeah. that exists from the very seed stages of a company. Yeah, from science experiment to actually something that is out in the world and works. Because and... many, if not all, of the companies fell into that chasm. Mm -hmm. and, and the Energy Commission, the CPUC, just the startups, investors in general, have learned from that yeah. and created these mechanisms to cross that chasm. Mm. And CalSeed is one of those. What's CalSeed? So CalSeed is a program developed by the Energy Commission, uh, administered through New Energy Nexus, mm. Danny Kennedy there, who's also an Australian. Oh. <laughs> he leads up the effort there. And they kind of serve as validation of, of technology, mm. very much grounded in scientific analysis of the applications. Right. It was very rigorous. And then it's awarded in two phases, 150000 and 450000 mm. to develop a business plan and then to develop a prototype. And so we were awarded that. And then that falls into Cal Testbed. So mm. once you've got to tech ready level five, then you can apply for Cal Testbed. And that gives you vouchers to, to laboratories around the country to begin really testing. And then you can apply for the bridge program, which is you know, up to $10 million, I think. Uh, and this is all state funded. All state funded for wow. the EPIC program. And so it's, it's partially funded by the state, partially funded by the utilities. Yeah, oh, right. Which in extension is me and you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As ratepayers. Absolutely. So yeah, we were awarded that. And just recently we were awarded the Caltest bed as well. So we've progressed very quickly through mm. this program. But we aren't operating on anybody's timeline here just because we've seen this transition from fire season to fire year. As I speak to the fire chiefs, it's not about fire seasons anymore. No. Um, it could be February. It could be March. Just yesterday, there was a fire ignited by a power line in Lake Tahoe. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. The um, You mentioned the Paradise Fire. I did a big piece for a magazine last year on the wildfires, and I met a family we were up in this place called Berry Creek, mm -hmm. where I had the most casualties. Like, I think 11 people died in this community, uh, very rural. And I was up there, and we were driving around, me and a photographer, and we came across this kind of burnt-out rubble of a house. And this family was just showing up there to kind of, they'd just been allowed back into the fire zone. And so they're at this, what was once their house, you know, a day before or two days before. And I was talking to them and they had just moved to this house because before they lived in paradise and their house in paradise burned down. And so they'd been at this house for like a year, eight, year and a half, 18 months, whatever. And now, so they had two houses burned down in three years in separate places. And it was just like a very uh, kind of striking moment, at least for me. I mean, living in California, fires are a thing now. But um, just of how kind of ever-present it is. And the, one of the th interesting things about what I think you guys are doing is that there's a whole bunch of startups now that are focused on let's deal with the causes. Let's, revert, let's pull CO2 out of the air or plant, you know, plant trees or do CCS or whatever it may be. And then there's a whole other swathe of companies like yourselves, which is like, okay, this is the reality. We have to help deal with the symptoms and kind of keep these disasters from be turning total catastrophes. But it's interesting. It does feel like there's a kind of a whole swathe from like, let's reverse climate change to this is the reality. It's probably going to get worse and let's do everything we can to mitigate it. We're an intermediate solution. Mm. The technologies and startups working on it, fixing those problems, it's going to take time. And also when you look at the grid, it's also going to take time to do the necessary upgrades to support the electrification of the mm. planet, the rapid electrification of the planet. I think people don't realize that. It's the skeleton of all of this innovation that is mm -hmm. driving the globe right now, whether it's currency, whether it's uh, electric vehicles. Uh, and we're at this position where 
we need to deploy capital mm. to upgrade our grids, but we don't know where to do it. And so I think we 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 kind of differentiate ourselves a little bit from even the, the startups that are responsible for prevention of climate change mm. and also response mm. where we're responsible for prevention of the ignition source um, but also our mission is to take our grid to the n- next phase of the millennium because most of this equipment predates world war one for sure and it's not designed to last more than 50 60 years and it's grown so fast that utilities run their equipment to failure. They are forced to. They have yeah. no choice. They don't have the workforce to maintain the equipment. And the story that you mentioned just before is what drives us to come to work mm. early in the morning and, and stay late. You yeah. know? But what it is that we're doing is preventing these issues from happening in the first place. And how? so when you went out to raise money out from investors how what was the reception was it a i mean you talked about you know your door knocking days back in the day what was your experience you know was it like a sea of no's and then a finally a, a yes or a couple of yeses or because the other thing i'm interested in as we kind of talk about the this energy transition and all that stuff is just what is actually happening on the ground because you know the shadow of the green tech bust of a decade ago is pretty long and I'm just wondering how people think about it now, especially as there is this general awakening of like, okay, climate change is this big thing. It's also a big opportunity. We just need to start investing. Like what is actually, what does that look like for someone like you on the ground trying to raise some money? So credibility of the team is the most important mm-hmm. ingredient, I believe, in fundraising. And the California Energy Commission grant gave us a lot of credibility. And it was enough money to keep us afloat and move at, at a, at a sufficient pace but we wanted to move faster Mm. because every year there's another fire or or another fire season yeah and people die and so we were looking through twitter and we noticed a post by jude gamilla who's actually from the uk and he's the founder of golden and they just raised a huge amount of money so he's an entrepreneur boots on the ground but mm. also an angel investor who's very, very active. Mm. And he put a call out for technologies addressing this wildfire problem. And immediately we, we, we thought, well, this could be an opportunity to accelerate our company. So we connected with him. And I remember... <laughs> you just slid into his DMs? Yeah, we just sent him a message. <laughs> uh, and he responded yeah. back with a time in two weeks. And so yeah. I spent all my time preparing a pitch deck practicing Hmm. and then i remember when came time for the call everything went wrong (laughs) (laughs) everything went wrong right um (laughs) we had set a schedule with a google meets yeah it failed i couldn't get into the room right then we went to teams and we couldn't get when we tried zoom and it wouldn't work and so we had scheduled a 30 minute call and you spent 20 minutes and now it's 20 minutes into the call and i haven't even introduced myself (laughs) so i'm certain this is going to be a failure yeah and finally i call him on his cell phone and send him a pdf of the pitch deck Hmm. and i said let's just do this over the phone yeah and you you can look at the pdf and fortunately he was going to have lunch after this meeting so he had some time so he's there cooking while on the phone, cooking his lunch, and it wasn't how I expected it to be. Because, you mm. know, you see Shark Tank and... and <laughs> <laughs> right. And he just started asking me very prudent questions about yeah. the business, about the problem, about the credibility of the team. And it went amazing. Mm. And at the end of the call, he said, I'd like to be your first investor. Like that. And that was incredible uh, because now, as I'm sure most people know, is it just takes one person to believe in you and then things can happen. And so he invested. We we got the first check. It was a huge kind of boost for the team Mm. as well. And Jude had gone through Y Combinator. And so he gave us a reference for the upcoming cohort and we applied to Y Combinator. And again, 
when we went, we were fortunate enough to be interviewed by YC. Mm. And for anybody uh, that has been through YC, you know that it's 10 minutes of rapid fire questions. And this was just me and Omar, my co-founder yeah. Omar at the time. And Jeff Ralston was on the call, director of YC. And it was interesting because I'd expected questions like, what is the worst thing that you've had to deal with? Yeah, These yeah. very general yeah. questions. But it's like they knew everything about our market, everything about our mm. business, everything about us and asking us the really, really difficult questions about what causes these faults and, and yeah, very particular questions. And we, we did well. Mm. Uh, and Jeff gave me a call a couple of hours later and offered us a position in the cohort. And then YC, I think its biggest value proposition to founders is generating urgency for fundraising leading mm. up to demo day and our next investor was 50 years i'm not sure yeah, if you're familiar seth with Bannon. it yeah so seth and show reached out to us well before demo day mm. and and we had everybody reach out to us sequoia big names wow. uh, and we weren't in fundraising mode and so mm. i just responded to them that where we're currently not fundraising we're focused on building the business and making week-on-week know, mm. week progress. Um, we'll speak to you when the time is correct. Mm. But Seth and Show were very persistent mm. <laughs> multiple times, weren't willing to accept that answer. And at one point, Show's like, I'm going to come out to your office for a whole day and I'm going to take everything off your plate if you just give me 30 minutes of your time <laughs> and you pitch me. Right. <laughs> And that was that was an incredible gesture for me. And we ended up speaking uh, to to Seth and, and Show, and it was not a pitch. It yeah. was not a deck that yeah, we yeah. went through. They also, even more in depth than YC, were asking us about the problem, about mm. the team, and they got all of us because then we we managed to bring Hall, my director of engineering, from Astranas, mm. and. Shinus is a, a space uh, satellite company working on com communication in yeah. remote areas. And the three of us were there on the call and they began cross-validating us, asking us questions about, well, why did you choose to work at Gridware in front of me? Right. Why did you choose Tim? Why do you believe in Tim? Yeah. And they also, within a week, committed to half of our, our round. Wow. And then from there, we just had this big, long list of 130 investors that had reached out to us to, to set up a call. And I was just trying to, to get through uh, the ones that I felt were mission orientated. Mm. Um, and at, at the beginning of every call, I kind of pre-screened most of them with, well, what are your thoughts about the utility industry, the, the long sales cycles? We're talking about mm. 24 to 36 month long sales cycles. What do you, how do you feel about hardware and the chip shortage yeah, yeah, yeah. now and, and components? And how do you feel about our mission acquisition? We're not interested in getting an acquisition or, or an exit. We're not even thinking about it. Yeah. The only time we will, will consider that is, is when we've solved the problem. Yeah. And these are very powerful things to say. And, and it would give a lot of reasons for an investor to, to, to back away from the deal. Yeah. And some of them did. But most of them understand that the very foundation that Silicon Valley is built on uh, and investment here in California requires people to be here mm -hmm. and everybody's leaving because of this problem. So mm -hmm. I think what, what actually happened with us is that the investors realized that this may not be an investment where they're looking for, for 10x on their investment only. This also has direct impact on the whole startup eco mm. ecosystem because when we stop the wildfires then california will be a place where people will still continue to live and they right. can continue because we've started to see now with the pandemic investors moving to miami and, and texas yeah and, yeah yeah and i don't know if that's ideal or not so so just on the actual sensor the box mm -hmm. what happens say it's you know one of these 2.8 million towers out in God knows where senses something amiss in the force. What happens? So let's take an example. 
So you have a, a piece of vegetation mm -hmm. will break off during a wind event and it'll fly in and cross two power lines it's called mm -hmm. a face-to-face -face fault. It's a high impedance fault and very little current travels through the vegetation, but it will combust mm -hmm. over 60 seconds long. It takes to generally 30 to 60 seconds before it combusts because water needs to be expelled from the branch. Yeah. During that process, it's hissing. It's making a very high-pitched squealing noise. Mm. And then it, it combusts mm. and an arc flash will occur. And then there's um, conductivity between. And then all of that, that burning vegetation will, will fall to the ground. And if there's wind bringing in lots of oxygen, you've got fuel below, yep. then the wildfire occurs. And, and because power lines are generally near homes mm -hmm. and it's an extreme weather event, it's this perfect storm to create damage and, and mm -hmm. take people's lives. So what, what would happen is, you know, I mentioned a couple of physical phenomena there. You've got the contact mm -hmm. of the branches with, with the, the conductors. And so that will cause vibrations, but also acoustic emissions. Then you've got the squealing and you've got the light associated with that. And because we're on every single pole in these high-fi threat areas, the energy released from these occurrences is large, but it dissipates mm. very quickly. But we're in that sphere before it dissipates entirely where we can get the required signal to noise ratios. Right. And so that happens within milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And then we can shoot across an alert to the local firefighters, um, to the utilities, and they can respond. So that's one aspect yeah. of what it is that we're doing. But while I was doing experiments to do this, I discovered another phenomenon where because we're on the equipment all the time, we can observe how it changes over time. And so when there's termite damage or heart rot or a fracture in the conductor or the insulator has, has fractured and there's tracking, there are these signals that are present. Mm. They're, they're floating around the pole, you, you could say, all the equipment. And if you're there to observe them, you know that, they had, that, that something has gone wrong. Yeah. And so this is, I think, the main value proposition about what we're doing is we're understanding how equipment degrades over time, linearly or non-linearly, mm. and also understanding why. Is it because of increased humidity? Is it because of, right. of a vehicle sliding out in the rain and hitting a pole? What is it that causes, in general these faults to occur. These are questions that nobody can answer at the moment. Mm. And when you start to make huge federal and state level decisions about where you, you invest, yeah. the data isn't there yeah. to inform those. And so that's really what it is that we're trying to do. And I will also mention as well, utilities now have been forced to do shutoffs and an extreme weather event might last two days, three days. Mm -hmm. And they have to switch the power off to yes. certain large areas of California. Yeah, like in the recently. Bay Area last yeah. year. Yeah. And when that happens, they lose complete situational awareness. They don't know what's going on. They don't know if a branch has hit right. power lines. They don't know if a pole has come down. They have to inspect every every inch that has been energized. And that process takes time in itself. Mm. And we're talking about millions of dollars per hour. Even... I read one statistic where it was estimated that one minute equals $1 million mm. of economical impact. And what we have the potential to do is because we're solar powered, battery backed, and we can remain on throughout mm. these whole outages, we're observing when a pole would come down or branches would lay against the conductor and troublemen can begin responding and rep making repairs immediately. Right. They don't have to wait till the extreme weather event is over because they have to work methodically. Yeah, yeah. They don't have to wait until it's daytime because you can't see anything in the night. They can start making repairs straight away. And so we that's the third thing that we're trying to do. And then that initial example that you gave of you know, the branch falling on the wires and then it combusts, et cetera. What is the difference between what you can do, what your sensor can do and, you know, how it works now so like if there's a fire and it starts then you know how long could that fire be going on before in today's world the firefighters are out there or the thing is out of control or like you know in terms of like the problem you're solving there what is the difference like i don't know if it's time 
is the kind of the measure there. What does instant notification mean? Well, it's going to depend on the fault. So you've got many different types of failure modes. I gave one, which is a branch across yeah. the conductors. You could have a pole come down and the conductors come together and you've got a bolted fault. That's going to trip the fuses or the short circuit very quickly. Right. But I bring this vegetation example in because it's almost indistinguishable from a load. So that can exist without everybody, anybody ever knowing. Hmm. And that whole, you could have the branch come down, ignite, fall to the ground, start a fire, and the first first time anybody knows about it is when they observe smoke. Mm-hmm. And for that to happen, you know, we're talking about, you know, in, in the forest of Sonoma, that could take 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour. Right. And when, when we're talking about, and these always happen during extreme weather events. That's the kicker. Yeah. It always happens during extreme weather events. And so you ha- have the potential for the fire to grow and spread very, very quickly. And this gives kind of pinpoint instant yeah, well, notification. Because each pole is roughly spaced 100 feet apart. We're going to be within 50 feet pinpoint like, uh, accuracy, but also almost immediately. And even before ignition, right? Because mm. the, the branch comes into contact 30 to 60 seconds. You could already have the firefighters with their gear on driving out to site. Right. It's a kind of a fundamental shift. But on the second thing that I mentioned, which is more about understanding equipment degradation, this is happening over months, if not years. Yeah. You've got heart rot proliferating into the poles. So if you knew which poles had heart rot, or if you knew which conductors had fracturing, or if you knew the, the insulators that had started to build up dust, you could go out and fix that problem before the extreme weather event when it was under duress. Right. And then the other thing as a startup, it feels like what you're selling is effectively, and you can tell me different, but it sounds like what you're trying to do is basically invite a utility to pay an extra tax, to 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 pay for something that isn't kind of immediately generating a return, a financial return. But is it is the, especially what's happened over these last few years with bankruptcies and just the increase in wildfires, whether like, you know, disaster avoidance is actually a financial winner enough that this actually makes sense for us to pay this extra upfront to, you know, put this on 2 million poles or whatever. Well, let's think about a couple things here. So when PG&E filed for bankruptcy, uh, it was in relation to this mm. exact issue. And... What that does, it's an investor-owned utility, right? Yep. And so shareholders need to make money for the utility to survive and exist and for us to get reliable power. And so you could perceive the utility to be a really bad person that is is trying to drive value for the shareholders. Well, if the shareholder is not incentivized to invest in the utility, the utility ceases to exist. So... What they had to do here in California is develop this insurance fund, which is a $21 billion insurance fund. It's contributed by the rate payers, mm. by, by the shareholders, and by the government. So they've effectively put a price tag on the cost of wildfires ignited by utilities. Mm. And so <laughs> if you wanted to think about a way to, to understand your, your serviceable, addressable market, mm. That's one way you could think about it. But also, they've the, the regulators have approved utilities to spend, at least PG&E, in 2021 and 2022, $4 billion on this problem. On kind of preventative measures, basically. All different types right. of, of, of things to, to mm. make sure that this doesn't happen again. But to answer your question, I believe what we can do is dramatically reduce that investment. And that's why I said this is a difficult problem to solve mm. because we want to do this cost efficiently. And to me, it makes a whole lot of sense where you can buy a $50 Fitbit with all the electronics that mm-hmm. you need to solve this problem and just put one on every pole. Yeah. And we start to talk about tens of millions or hundreds of millions to cover 95% of the risk in Northern California as opposed to $4 billion worth of investment yeah. or, or $21 billion in, in an insurance fund. And, you know, we haven't even sp- talked about what's the implications of actually reducing casualty to reinsurance mm. and insurance. Right. Insurance like risk, right? But, but they need to be able to control that risk or understand yeah. that risk. They're in a position now where they can't 
take on that risk because it's year on year. Yeah. And so even the insurance companies and the reinsurance They're companies back, yeah. are incentivized to stop these fires from happening. And so that's kind of a little project that I'm working on at the moment is to put together a working group from stakeholders from from the insurance companies, but also mm. from the utilities, from the government, from, from, from the public to really evaluate technologies that are addressing mm. this problem, not just gridware, but all of the different technologies that, that exist or are being developed at the moment and more to understand what are the economics behind this and how can we make this beneficial to all the stakeholders. Right. So you said the box isn't finished yet. So are there still things to crack for you to actually make this work? Or is it we just have to kind of optimize it and, you know, figure out how to make this at scale and all that stuff? Or In other words, like, is this, have you kind of figured it out? And if not, like, what what is the nature of the problem you still have to s- solve to make this work? So a huge amount of our problems right now is supply chain, mm. if that answers your question. Right. But the engineering itself. So you have core fundamental principles, and it's not very difficult to, yeah. to, to really envision. Uh, I'll give you an example. If you have a bolted fault, uh, the amount of energy that is released is upwards of three megajoules, which is the equivalent of a hand grenade exploding. Mm. <laughs> and so if I was to tell you, are you capable, or let's just say, is a Fitbit capable of detecting a grenade exploding? You would say that the science has already been yeah. worked out. Right. And that's basically what we're doing. It's just solving those other challenges associated with with being in remote areas, making mm. it robust, being able to to operate in low light conditions. That's the real challenge. And then design for manufacturing, right scaling that especially in this environment right now the supply chain is in pandemonium why (laughs) (laughs) well probably the same reason why you haven't done a podcast in person for the last year and a half fair enough fair enough and that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tim for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen. As ever, as well as all of your great ratings and reviews, the occasional tip in the Acast uh, feature, which is always awesome. I always want to mention that. And yeah, so we'll be writing. Uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm writing this week. It's a little bit up in the air, but you should check it out. Just go to thetimes.co.uk, buy a paper. It keeps me employed which I enjoy. Anyhow, thank you for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. Have a fabulous weekend. Onward we go. Be well. Bye-bye. Want more out of this podcast? Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley to read articles based on these interviews, broader discussions of the topics covered here, and of course, the amazing work of all my colleagues across the rest of the paper, all for less than one pound a day. Start your free trial now by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. 